welcome. Ready to go? Thanks. Welcome, everybody. Uh, a uh, slightly more intimate gathering than last time, which is last Friday night, which is fine. We're here for a uh, um, a feast, um, and uh, for certainly for Anne and I and Ron, who've had the privilege of ongoing conversations with Ian during the week while we've done various things. It's been, um, we tested each other's heresies on each other and saw how far we could push each other, which was a lot of fun. Uh, but the highlight of Ian's trip will be tomorrow night when we're taking him out to the Bledisloe Cup. So he just, <laughs> can't believe his luck. Um, anyway, a lot to look forward to. It's gonna be wonderful. Uh, a couple of announcements to start with. Uh, for those who want to make a contribution of uh, a cash contribution there's a uh, cardboard box out there that you can put the money in that's as organized as we could get on that site uh, the um, the second thing is uh, Ian's books uh, a lot of this material is really developed a lot more in seriously dangerous religion and the other one is convenient myths and um, so <coughs> highly recommend them both, but um, very, they're both very readable, but um, if, if you want to go into more depth in, in terms of how Ian handles some of the Genesis account in particular, um, into more detail about comparisons with other, uh, the other religions, it's really fantastic. So I'd recommend those to you. Um, and apart from that, I think we're ready to go. Now, Simon Smart from the Centre for Public Christianity is going to say a few words to begin with and tell us some of the exciting things that uh, you've arranged that Ian's done this week. Thanks. Thank you, Tony. Thanks, everyone. Good to see you remembered your banner this week, Tony. So well, well done on that. Um, uh, great, great to see you all here. Um, Yes, as I said last week, uh, and many of you were here last week, although, although, not, although there are some here who are fresh uh, to this, uh, we did say last week that Centre for Public Christianity is very, very glad to be part of this event, uh, working with Tony and Ron and Gospel Conversations, as we've done for a number of years now. And so uh, we're very, very glad to be part of this and having Ian and over these two weekends. Ian uh, was my Old Testament lecturer at Regent College uh, a few years ago now, Ian. Um, but uh, that was a, a fabulous experience for me and it's, it's real, personally, just a, a fun thing for me to come and sit and listen to Ian again. Um, at Centre for Public Christianity, uh, apart from events and other things, we, one of the ways we try to promote the public understanding of the Christian faith is by engaging mainstream media and we write articles for the media as often as we can. And uh, it's fair to say that not every one of those articles is met with great relish by the people who, who uh, read them, uh, or at least by those who bother to comment on them. And, uh, you know, we, we try not to read all the comments, but occasionally you glance at them. And um, one that I, I wrote an article earlier this year in the Sydney Morning Herald, which someone wrote back and said, I wish it was the Centre for Private Christianity. <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny, really. But, you know, it gave an expression to a very commonly held these days that you know I don't care what you believe you can believe all that stuff if you want to but keep it to yourself it's a private matter and uh, for those of us who accept the Christian faith that's kind of an incomprehensible thing 
that you would imagine that, that, that there's something about that faith that remains private and doesn't have an impact, of sort of have positive entailments in a whole lot of different ways. It doesn't have a whole lot to say about your, your view of not only the, the world that you exist in, but your, uh, what it means to be a human being, and therefore uh, what it means to live well together, what's the good life, what's, what we mean when we say the common good. Uh, what uh, things like ethics and politics that might flow out of all those things. And so you know, Ian's talking right into that question. And uh, it's, it's fabulous to have someone like Ian to, to be able to articulate that so well, not only to say why those things are so important, what those things tell us about the world and our place in it, but what, what Christianity says about it particularly. And, and the fact that this is actually such an incredibly life-affirming vision of the world. It, that's a surprise to people out in the street. That, that's, not, that's news to people, right? It's a, the, the last place you might think of to go to find full life is in the church, to, in many people's minds today. And so I was reminded today of why it's so good to have someone like Ian who can articulate that so well and so encouragingly. Uh, when I took him over to ABC Studios and he was interviewed, in a very extensive interview with John Cleary at ABC, who, who does some, the Sunday nights program, and uh, it was a great interview. Look out for that. If you're not the person, if you, it's Sunday week, so it won't be on this Sunday, but the, the following Sunday. If you don't sit up late on Sunday nights listening to the radio, that's okay because you'll be able to find find that uh, on the podcast and on we'll, Gospel Conversations. We'll put it up for sure and CPX as well. So uh, look out for that. It's a really good conversation. But it's so good to have Ian here to do that, to tell us uh, some of these very sort of foundational things and why it, this, is a, this is publicly of interest and publicly of good news. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear Ian, thrilled to hear again tonight and then tomorrow uh, sort of ex- expanding on this uh, very important idea. So thanks, Ian. Please welcome Ian. <coughs> Good evening, everyone. Nice to be back. Nice to see, uh, see you all. Um, I want to begin this evening with uh, Tolkien. I thought that would be a good thing to do. Um, towards the end of the second volume, originally there was a multi-volume work. It's, nowadays you don't typically buy it like that, but that's how it was. Towards the end of the second volume of The Two Towers, we find ourselves in one of the darkest places in the Lord of the Rings. The two hobbits, Frodo and Sam, are preparing to enter the evil realm of Mordor, where they hope to be able to destroy the ring of power that otherwise will assure victory for evil over good and the dominion of the dark lord Sauron. If you've read the book, uh, you may remember they sit down to eat together in this rather dark place. And they talk about their journey, the story in which they find themselves, and about other famous journeys and stories of the past. I wonder, muses Sam, what sort of tale we've fallen into. And Frodo confesses that he doesn't know, but he says, that's the way of a real tale. Take anyone that you're fond of. You may know or guess what kind of tale it is happy ending or sad ending, but the people in it don't know and you don't want them to. 
This prompts in Sam a revelation of a kind as he considers the old story of Beren and the Silmaril, a long tale that he says goes on past the happiness and into grief and beyond it. And he realizes that some of the light of the Silmaril lies close by them as they're talking in the star glass gifted to Frodo by the Lady Galadriel. Why, to think of it, says Sam, we're in the same tale still. It's going on. Don't the great tales never end, he asks. It's a very illuminating little exchange, I think. We, each of us, likewise find ourselves in the midst of a story. It could not be otherwise. It's just the way we are. At the most personal level, there's the story of our own lives. Our telling of each of our stories is an integral part of the way in which we relate to each other. We we tell our story, don't we? We listen. Uh, It's an important part of the way in which we come to understand who we are and the shape of things. But of course, uh, our personal story is shrouded in mystery. Looking back, We don't remember much at all about the things that first shaped us. Looking ahead, the end of our story is even more unknown. We don't know where it's going to end up. So here we are in our story. As one author has put it, where we are is inextricably middled. Inextricably middled is a wonderful phrase, David Lyle Jeffrey's phrase. And because we are inextricably middled, we are often also comprehensively muddled. Uh, We don't know where we're going or what to do next or where to go next in our journey. And this is not a new human condition. You may think of this as a rather postmodern way of, of talking about things, but one of the greatest stories in Western literature is Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, the medieval but very contemporary story of one man's journey down into the pit of hell, up the great mountain of purgatory, and out through all the circles of heaven until he attains a vision of God. It's a very physical journey, But it's also a journey that Dante takes into himself to confront his own past, his own capacity for sin and repentance and righteousness. And Dante's story begins in this way, at least this is the English translation of it. Midway this way of life we're bound upon, I woke to find myself in a dark wood where the right road was wholly lost and gone. It's the original Western midlife crisis. The speaker finds himself lost in the middle of a story whose end is a mystery. He is middled and he is muddled. So that's a very ancient version of the same kind of thing. We each have our story to tell. But in each case, the beginning is shrouded in mystery, the end lies beyond our grasp, and the middle is often difficult to read. 
it's a story that begs for a larger story to make sense of it. And the yearning for that larger story is to be seen all around us in contemporary culture. We see it in the popular fascination with the stories of the rich and famous that litter our media as people imagine themselves enviously into the seemingly more complete and satisfying stories of other people. And they try to live vicariously through these demigods and to gain some sense of meaning and purpose that their own story doesn't give them. This quest for the larger story reveals itself, I think, in the modern obsession with TV soap operas and movies, most disturbingly sometimes in the case of those who cannot apparently differentiate fantasy from reality. The same yearning, uh, I think, reveals itself in the fascination all over the world with video games, increasingly sophisticated video games, designed to draw us into a story and provide us with an adventure in virtual reality, giving us the chance to play endlessly shifting roles, to experience in these roles a world complete in itself that makes sense and hangs together, and for many people apparently, does so much more effectively than real life does, which is why they don't come back out very much. I was told by a guy in Silicon Valley just a few months ago that the guys who are currently trialing all of these virtual reality suits that you hear about spend like almost all of their day inside these things and they don't want to come out. I mean, they're having a blast. It's a far more satisfactory life than, than the one they're living, as it were. Um, in these various ways, uh, these phenomena are what sociologists of religion call signs of transcendence. They are hints that we are wired to find our place in a larger story and not to remain an island unto ourselves. They are hints of what the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about when he says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. There's this longing for something else. And the truth of the matter is that if we only have my story, you know, the t-shirt, I'm living a soap opera and I am the star, you know, it's that kind of, uh, if that's all we have, then to paraphrase the Apostle Paul, we are of all people most miserable, it seems to me. And I think, honestly, all of us at some level are looking for this larger story into which we can fit our own lives. Again, this is not new. As the ancient philosopher Alcimon of Crotona once wrote, men perish because they cannot join the beginning with the end. It's a very old saying, but it's already speaking, I think, to this phenomenon. And so the question that arises, of course, is where then is this larger story to be found? Uh, Christians claim that it is to be found unfolded in the Bible, that great story that begins with creation and ends with death and resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth, at the center of which stands Jesus Christ. This is the story that makes sense of all the other stories. That is, I think, the Jerusalem claim 
We're using Jerusalem in these talks as a kind of shorthand for biblical faith, the biblical perspective. And uh, if you were here last weekend, you will know that we were exploring some aspects of that story, building on the talks that Professor Edwin Judge gave here at Gospel Conversations in 2014. He was largely concerned with contrasting uh, Athens and Jerusalem, so the Greek worldview with the uh, biblical one. In the course of his talks, he quite frequently said things like, such and such was the case in the ancient world except in Jerusalem. And I've taken that as the launching pad for what I've been doing, which is to explore the backstory of Jerusalem much more deeply, but also to take things uh, more widely as well, uh, looking at other uh, contemporary answers to the question, in which story do we find ourselves? And uh, one of the things we were talking about last week weekend is that for all that people will claim that these stories are fundamentally saying the same thing about that, they are in fact not. They're saying very, very different things, and that inevitably presses upon us the question of where the truth uh, lies. Um, and another of the things that I was uh, trying to establish last week was the way in which these various elements of each story hang together as a package deal. They, they involve each other. Um, so, this is a slide that I showed you if you were here last week that just summarizes my argument on this, the general argument, that every cosmology, every set of answers to the question, what is the world, is associated with a theology, a set of answers to the question, who is God or what are the gods. Both of those are bound up with an anthropology, what is a human being, who are we, and inevitably, all of that is bound up with an ethics, how should I live, and with a politics, what is the good society, how should we live. I didn't say this last week, but I do want to add it here, that bound up with all of these is also an epistemology. We're getting all of our ologies out on the table right at the beginning this evening. Epistemology is, how do I arrive at knowledge? How do I know stuff? And there are very different answers to that question, actually, historically and at the present time. And that question is also bound up with all of the other ones. So, that's where we've been. Um, this evening, I want to begin to turn our attention away from cosmology and theology narrowly conceived. So, from the, the big question about which kind of story are we in, what is the world about, uh, how do we uh, account for evil and suffering? These were last weekend's questions. And I want to begin to move us more into the realm, first of all, of politics. We're going to start this evening with a fairly wide-ranging consideration of Jerusalem's view of right relationships in creation. That's the wider context, I think, in which... Uh, we can then sensibly discuss politics. And we'll start tomorrow morning with the question of politics and its uh, connection to the mundane things of life and the great transcendental principles of life. We'll go on to reflect on the question, what is a human being? And we'll end up in the afternoon by 
addressing the question of hope. What is the hope in Jerusalem? So that's the agenda for, uh, for the weekend, well, part of the weekend before we get to the game, of course. By the way, last week I was saying, you know, I was talking to you about my uh, attempt to move away from my pessimistic, pessimistic heritage to a more optimistic frame of reference for my understanding of the Christian gospel. I have to say the only Australian I've met who thinks the Wallabies are going to win on Saturday evening was, was a kid. A very perceptive young man, I think. I commended him. But I think you guys have got your own problems with pessimistic worldviews, as far as I can see. So, so I'm going along to this game, but I'm not sure what I'm going to find there. So that's, that's this evening's agenda in the larger context. Uh, let's get going with that, and I'll just take that off screen just for the moment. So um, relationships in Jerusalem. How does Jerusalem conceive of the cosmos, creation, when it is functioning optimally? What is, what is the vision of what ought to be? What does that vision look like? And uh, as we saw last weekend, there are three kinds of relationships fundamentally that are in play on this question in, in Scripture. And the first of these has to do with the human relationship with God. So the three are obviously, I think obviously, our relationship with God, our relationship with other human beings, and our relationship with the rest of creation. And in Jerusalem's perspective, life is working the way it should when those relationships, all of them are whole and complete, and they are going well, and they are being fruitful. So I want to talk about each of these uh, in turn, and I want to begin uh, with the idea of our relationship with God. And I want to begin by drawing attention to a rather famous quote from this man, Oliver Wendell Holmes. The great act of faith, he said, is when a man decides that he is not God. Um, these words implicitly acknowledge, of course, that human beings have the habit of doing just the opposite to that. Uh, that's, uh, in the biblical analysis, in fact, that's uh, one of the fundamental, perhaps the fundamental problem. We saw this last weekend when we looked at Genesis 3, because Genesis 3 traces this bad habit right back to the beginnings of human experience, in fact. It understands this habit as lying at the heart of various human problems. The general tendency to confuse creation with the Creator, to confuse ourselves with God, is implied in all sorts of biblical injunctions about, for example, not trying to image God in something that is part of creation. This insistence that God is God and creation is not. Of course, uh, old religion in the ancient Near East was absolutely prone to getting confused on that point, the gods and creation all bound up together. But in one of the most centrally important stories of the Old Testament, we find God appearing to Moses, you may recall, in the burning bush. Moses has a vision of God out in the wilderness. And God appears to Moses, and later on 
He rescues Israel from Egypt. And one of the great themes of that Exodus story is precisely this. God cannot be imaged by anything in creation except, interestingly, by human beings. Only persons can image the ultimate person. The ancient gods in the plural were always imaged. They were always imaged and named and assigned a function in the cosmos. That's really what it meant to exist in the ancient world. It was to have a name and have a function in the cosmos and to be imaged so that you could see how that played out. The God of the burning bush famously says that He can never be imaged. And indeed, in the Exodus story, the God who reveals Himself to Moses is not even properly named and is certainly not assigned a function in the cosmos. That is the significance of this rather famous line, I am who I am. What is your name? I am who I am, which if you think about it, is not so much a name as a statement of intent. It's not really a name at all. Uh, and in the words of the Ten Commandments, this God, Yahweh, is never to be captured, and I'm quoting now, uh, in an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. So, in the Jerusalem perspective, right relationships in the cosmos have at their heart the rejection of idolatry, that is, the worship of things which are not God, the worship of creatures, essentially, is what uh, idolatry is, including my worship of myself, self-worship, which is also part of uh, that. So, there is this self-worship, this getting confused about whether I am God or not. But in the Old Testament, this actually applies to any other creatures that we might elevate to this position of divinity, this position of ultimate loyalty and devotion. Worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars, old religion, worship of the storms, these were standard features of religion in the ancient Near East. But the biblical authors don't just uh, call that into question. They also call into question inappropriate human dependence on other human beings. In other words, uh, the political realm is understood to be suffused with idolatry in, in Old Testament thinking. The prophets uh, regularly attack uh, the Israelite monarchs for depending on Egypt or Assyria or Babylon. It's a fundamental posture of this kind of worshipful kind. So, idolatry is not simply making those idols of clay and so on and setting them in the temple. Idolatry is actually really about our whole posture vis-a-vis -vis reality in biblical uh, thinking. It's a matter of our entire orientation, the whole direction of our life. It is not merely a religious matter, idolatry in Scripture. It refers to the social, the economic, and the political spheres as well. Why is it bad? Uh, well, of course, in biblical thinking, it's bad because it perverts the truth. It's bad because it dishonors the Creator. 
but it's also bad because it is enormously destructive. Uh, in worshiping idols, say our biblical texts, human beings do damage to themselves, they do damage to each other, and they do damage to the world in which they live. To turn from God to the gods in biblical thinking is to embrace a lie, and the lie is not harmless. It quickly turns around and bites your head off, as it were. When we forget who God really is, claims Jerusalem, it's only a short step to forgetting who we are, who our neighbor is, and what the world is. And you can see how if things do hang together as packages, that's inevitably true, right? You begin to lose the plot, as it were. In fact, in biblical thinking, all right knowledge really depends on right knowledge of the living God. And that is why in Jerusalem, idolatry is often described not so much as breaking a divine commandment, which is perhaps the normal way that we might think of that, but quite often idolatry is described actually in the Old Testament in particular as an act of cosmic insanity. It's not just breaking a rule, it's something which actually tears at the very fabric of being. Um, and you see this, and this is reflected in the title I chose for this evening. You see this in a text like Jeremiah 8, verse 7. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons, and the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But Jeremiah goes on, however, you Israelites are idiots, I'm paraphrasing, uh, but that's the sense of the text. The animals know, but you, you clever folks, you are fools. You, you don't understand this. And in response to this, God doesn't so much command people to come back, although there is quite a bit of that. It's not only that. Uh, God really asks people to come to their senses. Come, let us reason together. This kind of language is persuasive. Uh, because it's not just a matter of arbitrary rules hanging around waiting to trip people up. This kind of thing just tears at the very fabric of existence. It's bad for everyone. It's bad for all creatures. So, right relationships in Jerusalem have at their heart trust in God, trust in the goodness of God, the rejection of other gods in that context. And if you were here last weekend, you'll remember we spent some time looking at the Genesis account of, of moral evil and noting that distrusting the goodness of God is described as lying at the heart of the human problem. Before there is actually any uh, sort of conscious, active evil doing, there is simply a lack of trust, a lack of fundamental trust, a lack of the correct uh, posture. And uh, so, in Jerusalem, right relationships involve at their heart trust in the goodness of God, trust when things are going well, in which case you're trusting and praising, trust when things are not going well, in which case you're trusting and lamenting. But whether you're praising or lamenting, the fundamental posture is one of trust. This fundamental idea in the Bible, that as the Apostle Paul will later say, God is for us. God is for us. And that's why there can arise love for God. 
which is a, obviously a rather important relational theme. I mean, it's one thing to command love for God, but of course, in practice, love for God would be impossible were God not good and worthy of love. Uh, you can't just command someone to love. And if God were indeed, as Richard Dawkins thinks, a malevolent, arbitrary, unpredictable being, then of course it would be very difficult to know how one, how one would love, even if one were commanded. But it's because God is the kind of God that God is that the command to love makes sense, becomes something that actually can be uh, enacted. Now, that's the fundamental relational reality, as far as I see it, at the heart of the biblical worldview. And I want to suggest to you that this is a unique perspective on the heart of cosmic reality. This is an entirely unique perspective. It is found nowhere else except in Jerusalem. Old religion, old polytheistic animism, does not have one personal God to whom I might relate, much less one personal God to whom I should relate. There just is no such person in the picture. And the same is true of those axial religions and philosophies that do actually possess the idea of a one out there somewhere uh, to, to which we are supposed to relate, I guess, in some way. But when you analyze the nature of that relationship and the nature of the one, you discover that it's entirely different from the perspective I've just been uh, elaborating on. Uh, so let's just do a, a quick check, a tick box uh, on, on this issue. Classical Hinduism, the ultimate reality is Brahman, resolutely impersonal. In the end, I cannot separate Brahman from myself because my true identity is in fact that I am identical with Brahman. So not a separate personal being to whom I relate at all. Classical Buddhism, there is an ultimate reality. It is Dharma, the universal ordering principle that's present everywhere, but is impersonal. Uh, so again, it's not the kind of thing that Jerusalem's talking about at all. Confucianism, again, certainly an ultimate principle in the cosmos, the Tao, which holds everything together, but it is not a person. Classical Taoism, as the name suggests, also believes in the Tao, the eternal source of all reality, but it is impersonal. And then coming back to our friend Plato, with whom we have so many energetic discussions in gospel conversations, I'm sure, Plato's ultimate reality, the form of the good, the highest idea of the good, the beautiful and the true, but also not a person, and neither is Aristotle's unmoved mover. In all these traditions, human life just cannot involve at its core a relationship with one transcendent personal God, because the cosmology does not give you, as it were, such, such a God to begin with. Within these traditions, it makes no sense to give up on divinity because there is no such divine person before whom we are supposed to relinquish that divinity. 
It may even be that that whole notion of distinction is misguided. It makes no sense in these traditions to trust in God's goodness as if there were a person who intended goodness towards us. You see how this is just a matter of logical necessity. It's, uh, the packages hang uh, together. And so these notions of love and obedience and so on in, in the Bible, they're, they're embedded in this larger idea of uh, who God is at the center of the whole operation. Um, and as I said last time, uh, in many of the Eastern traditions in particular, our personhood is in fact fundamentally problematic. In order to escape the wheel of, the exist the wheel of existence, I have to realize in the end that I, my personhood is an obstacle to that, and I have to divest myself of that personhood. And then let's take Islam as a, as a different kind of example. I didn't talk much about Islam last week, so I'm trying to try and remedy uh, that this weekend. Uh, obviously, in Islam, we have Allah who is one and certainly personal and absolutely must not be imaged. So that's strong prohibition in idolatry. And Islam also agrees very closely with setting at the heart of things a right relationship with God trusting in the goodness of Allah for sure, obeying Allah, all of these things are true. Uh, but Islam nonetheless differs quite markedly on certain aspects of this question. One of the important ones is just how broken are human beings and how are they going to actually get into these right relationships again with God? Uh, the answer that Islam gives to that is really quite straightforward, just get on with it, really. Just turn and go in the right direction. You are perfectly capable of doing that, and there is no problem. In other words, there is no idea of Allah seeking out the lost, uh, redeeming the lost. Indeed, there's no strong idea either of Allah loving the lost. In the Quran, Allah loves those who do good, who are steadfast and trust Him. But the Quran never states that God loves someone who has not loved him first, never implies that Allah loves someone who has not already turned himself around and got on the right path. Um, as the prophet Muhammad himself uh, put this in the Quran, if you love God, follow me, and God will love you and forgive you your sins. God is most forgiving and merciful, but if they turn away, know that God does not love those who ignore his commands. Um, and we'll see shortly that this inevitably plays out in the kind of posture that we then are supposed to have to our human neighbors. It's inevitable uh, that it would. It's very interesting that references to the love of Allah in the Quran are very few in number, and it's certainly not a feature of the character of Allah that is one of the the topmost ones, if I can put it that way. Um, so love does not lie at the heart of God uh, in, this, in this way of thinking, and Mecca is very different from Jerusalem, therefore, at very significant points. Okay, that was point number one, um, relating rightly to God. I want to talk next about relating rightly to my neighbor. In creation, as it should rightly be, in Jerusalem, 
there is this very strong idea that human creatures ought to relate uh, in, a, in a particular set of ways to each other. The relationship that goes wrong in Genesis, right after the relationship with God that goes wrong, is of course the relationship between human beings. And the question is, uh, what are we supposed to aspire to? What does it look like when things are right? Genesis 4 hints at the answer to this question. Uh, this on screen is the question of Cain to God after he has murdered his brother Abel, of course. Am I my brother's keeper, he asks in Genesis 4 verse 9. That question is never explicitly answered in the passage because it doesn't need to be. From the perspective of Jerusalem, the answer is obvious. Yes, of course, you have been created by God to work the garden, to take care of it, to keep it, and of course you are to keep your brother. That is the core of right relating, to keep our brothers and sisters. In Genesis 4, interestingly, this already includes loving your enemies. Um, I think sometimes people think of that instruction to love enemies as being a distinctively New Testament injunction. But think of the story of Cain. God himself keeps Cain, looks after Cain, cares for Cain. He puts a mark of protection on Cain in spite of everything that's happened. Cain has made himself an enemy of God by killing his brother, but God responds with care and ongoing concern. It's a very powerful story. Um, and this keeping of the neighbor is made much clearer as the story continues. The Ten Commandments begin by uh, delimiting the right way of relating to God, but they quickly move on to guidelines about how we should treat our neighbors. So the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, reinforce our notion that our relationship with God is intrinsically connected to our relationship with each, with each other, that worshiping God uh, religion and ethics, as we might uh, talk of them, are simply two sides of the same coin. In the Ten Commandments, God, who will not be treated as an object to be exploited, an image of some kind, demands that human beings do not treat each other as objects, but as persons. The God who insists on being addressed as thou rather than it demands that we should relate to each other as thou and not as it. It's a very profoundly important point. Um, so this idea of uh, not grasping after what our neighbor needs, not coveting, for example, is, is pretty much central to that whole idea. So there are certainly commandments about neighbor keeping in Exodus 20, the story of the Ten Commandments. But these represent only some of the important principles involved in human relationships in Jerusalem. Sometimes I think we've made the mistake of abstracting the Ten Commandments as if they were an easy-to-fit-in-your-back-pocket summary of everything that was really important in the Bible. I think this is untrue. Um, we have other great principles that are enjoined upon us, like 
Leviticus 19, verse 18, which I'm sure you know off by heart. Actually, you do know it off by heart. You just didn't know it was Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Leviticus 19, verse 18 says. Uh, in other words, we are not to put our own interests ahead of our neighbors. We are to consider them at the same time as we're thinking about ourselves. That's a very high-order principle. It's uh, love for neighbor that displaces covetousness, for example. Thou shalt not covet. Well, why would you not? Well, because I care about my neighbor. There's an empathetic connection. Who is the neighbor? That's a very famous New Testament question, but it's already raised in the Old Testament. The vocabulary of neighborliness, that vocabulary in ancient Hebrew can refer to a friend or a lover or a husband, but also simply to somebody who's in your proximity. That's the basis of Jesus' response to that question, of course, about who your neighbor might be. It's uh, someone who's close to hand that you could help. Uh, very strikingly, in Jerusalem, the neighbor does include the enemy. The immediate context of that command to love your neighbor in Leviticus 19 makes that very clear because the context is, if I am wronged by somebody and I find myself tempted to seek revenge or bear a grudge, I am not to do that, but instead to love my neighbor. You see, so the context gives the larger dimension. So, neighbor and enemy is already, that, that question is already being, as it were, debated or, or outlined in the book of Leviticus. If you're not quite yet ready to tackle Leviticus, let's go to the rather more user-friendly book of Proverbs, chapter 25. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Uh, that's in the Old Testament, folks, by the way, just, just so we're clear on that. In other words, there's a very strong idea in the Old Testament that it is for God to bring justice. It is for God to bring vengeance, by which is meant justice, actually. If somebody persists in being an enemy, well, that's actually what's going to happen. But the point is, it's not for human beings to do that. Um, and in this way, the ancient cycle of heroic vengeance is broken. The notion of blood feud is broken, and all the cycles of violence that follow from that. Um, this is very nicely illustrated in the story of David and Saul. Uh, if you know that story well, you will know that on a number of occasions, David finds himself in a position to do harm to Saul, thereby preventing Saul from doing harm to him. But he passes up those opportunities, do you remember? And the view he takes is that it's for God to sort that out. It's not for me to deal with my enemy. Uh, the book of Job also picks up this theme of right treatment of enemies. When Job claims in chapter 31, verse 29, that he has not rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, nor has he allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against his life. So, a very strong idea that the right way of behaving vis-a-vis -vis neighbors already includes those who are hostile to you. Uh, 
Job 31 is all about Job defending his virtue, you may remember. After all those debates with his so-called comforters, he gets to the end of all that and he says, I want one last go at this, please. And, and he, 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 he lays out all the ways in which he thinks he has uh, lived well. And this is why the suffering that comes to him is incomprehensible, in fact. It seems to be out of all proportion to the way he has lived. Uh, so one of the things he claims is, I have been kind to my enemies. I have not sinned against my enemy. So uh, these two injunctions, to love God, to love the neighbor, they lie at the heart of this biblical story, this Jerusalem story that we're unpacking. And these great principles of loving God and loving neighbor give you the, the outside edges of the framework within which far more specific instructions make sense, like do not steal. Well, why? Well, because you're doing bad stuff to your neighbor. Be generous. Uh, yeah, okay, why? Well, because it's your neighbor, right? Um, one of the problems with simply taking the Ten Commandments out of the whole context is we can come to think that do not steal is the last word on my duty to my neighbor. But in fact, it's missing out the positive, be generous to your neighbor, you see. Now, this is, I think, the problem the rich young ruler had, by the way, when he said, I have kept all the commandments, and Jesus says, good, now go and be generous. And the young fellow's face falls because I think he thought the Ten Commandments, you know, he'd ticked all the boxes, but he hadn't really grasped that loving your neighbor was more than simply not doing stuff not stealing and, and all of that. Uh, so, that's, the, that's, that's where we've got to so far. Now, once again, if you go out into these other big stories that we've been juxtaposing with uh, the biblical story, it, it should not be surprising to us that these other stories do not look at the world in the way I've just described, right? Because they don't share the big frame about the ultimate person and all of that. So there's very little reason to think or to expect that they would share this perspective on neighborliness. It would be unreasonable to expect them to do uh, all of that. Um, these things are bound up with each other. In that sense, God's question of Adam, where are you, is always connected to the question he poses to Cain, where is your brother? It's very interesting, those two questions. They're connected. Where are you and where is your brother? That's, that's the two sides of the coin. Um, and those questions are also connected then to others. Who is your brother and what do you mean by brother? So even, even to frame that question is bound up with the big picture. Uh, precisely because ethics, morals, are part of a larger package. We would be foolish to read Plato, for example, expecting him to command anything like love of neighbor. Uh, and the reason is, and some of you will remember this perhaps from last week, the, the reason is uh, that in relation to Plato, you remember what this, this fellow Bostock says about this, the morality which our true philosopher lays claim to, in the Platonic view, is thoroughly egocentric. 
Right? It's about me and my escape from the wheel of existence, as it were. The main business of uh, the, the virtuous person in the Greek tradition is to separate the soul from the body, and all the rest is about good order. Uh, justice, you may remember Edwin talking about this, justice in the Greek tradition is simply the will to fulfill the duties of your station in society. Justice is order, actually. At the same time, not to interfere with other people's duties in their stations. Uh, and so Edwin made a big deal about this, actually, in his second talk, that the Greek virtue of justice is all about the correct placement of the self in the life of the polis and ultimately the life of the cosmos. And he went on to point out that the four cardinal virtues in Athens have nothing primarily to do with relational commitments. Some of you may vaguely remember that. Very important point, in fact. And we could talk a bit more about that, but I'm going to defer simply to Edwin on that and, and uh, let that stand for the moment. That, if you again remember, is why Edwin objected to these four virtues of Athens being joined to the three Jerusalem virtues of faith, hope, and love, because it was apples and oranges. The latter three are relational virtues. The four cardinal Greek, Greek virtues are not relational virtues. So you wouldn't expect Plato to command anything like love of neighbor, and the philosophy of the Greco-Roman world more generally is likewise bound to disappoint. Uh, if you take Epicureanism, which is hard to say at this time of the evening, um, as one of your examples, well, what was the Epicurean setting out to do? Well, to attain tranquility, freedom from fear, and anxiety. I'm quoting a scholar who knows a lot about uh, that religion. And so again, it's a fundamentally self-interested ethic. It's about not overindulging, it's about moderation, and so on. It is, in uh, Tim O'Keefe's words about this, a disposition to adhere to the agreement now to harm, not to be harmed, and to do so for the right reason, that is, because it contributes to a pleasant life. Well, that's not what the Bible means by love of neighbor. It's a very self-focused uh, kind of thing. The situation is no uh, different in the East either. Uh, we talked about Hinduism last weekend, and you may remember that the caste system is as it is because of Hindu beliefs about cosmology and the gods. And so if you're in the caste system at the bottom of the rung, you deserve to be there, in fact. Um, and uh, there is really no pressing duty to alleviate the suffering of those at the bottom of the rung. In fact, it would be wrong to interfere with their working out of their karma, right? Um, so a very strong hierarchy, and it's not accidental. Uh, Buddhism, rather similar, not really knowing very anything really about the biblical love of neighbor. And then Islam, for the reasons I said earlier, love of neighbor is not central to Islam because the love of Allah is not one of the primary uh, things that, that's going on, right? It's all about uh, transcendental power and submission. And so Muslims are exhorted, in fact, not to love outsiders to the faith who are considered to be both Allah's enemies and their own. Uh, God himself does not love the unbeliever in the Quran. 
So why would it make any sense for us to love the unbeliever? You see the two things are uh, connected. And so you certainly don't find in the Quran any idea of loving the enemy. In fact, the notion of jihad, struggle, is very important to Muslims. This is Malise Ruthven's book on Islam. He says, in Islam, the world is divided into two mutually hostile camps, the sphere of Islam and the sphere of war. Enemies will convert like the polytheists or submit like the Christians and the Jews. So power and submission are the main driving ideas vis-a-vis -vis God. It's not surprising that those would be the main driving forces of how we ought to behave because inevitably these two things follow from each other. Okay, thirdly and lastly and more briefly because we're moving along here in terms of time. The third kind of right relationship in Jerusalem is all about our human relationship with the rest of creation. Um, am I my brother's keeper? Well, we've established uh, that Jerusalem's answer to that question is, absolutely you are. Uh, but here's another related question, uh, am I my keeper's brother? Uh, are there relational imperatives to which we ought to pay attention with regard to the rest of creation? And although uh, many people appear to think not, I believe Jerusalem's answer to that question is also a resounding yes. Let me just tell you briefly a number of reasons why I think that is so. In the book of Genesis, first of all, a lot of emphasis on the oneness of human beings with the rest of the creation. All creatures are God's creatures. Human beings are only part of the whole thing. They do have special tasks to fulfill. But commonality is the big idea. You may have noticed in Genesis that human beings do not have a day of creation to themselves. They share the sixth day, do they not, with land animals. Genesis 2 underlines the same commonality. Humans are produced from the earth in the same way as the other animals are. Human beings are hummus. Uh, in the sense of the, they come from the earth, yes? Um, we'll come back to that tomorrow. So we are one subset of the living beings that God creates. And the conclusion to the week of creation in Genesis 1 does not even happen on the sixth day, but on the seventh, which is interesting. It is Sabbath rest, not the completion of humanity, that completes creation and brings it to its fullness. It is Sabbath rest that's the climax. And of course, the Sabbath rest was then celebrated in Israel once a week. And on that day, the Ten Commandments, this is very significant. On that day, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals. Right? The rest of creation shares the Sabbath rest. It's consistent with the Genesis 1 story. Human beings, one creature among many. We should not think of ourselves inappropriately as a god over against the rest of creation. We are to be just rulers. We are to keep. We are to guard. We are to look after the garden like priests. It's religious work in God's world. It is 
holy work, because the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it is not ours. It belongs to God. We are simply the tenants. We are the ones looking after it on behalf of, for God. Now, of course, in the dysfunctional world in which we live, this is often what we don't do. Separated from God and at war with ourselves, our relationship with the rest of creation is deeply fractured. And there are some very powerful biblical texts that deal with this, and by implication tell you it should not be this way. Uh, One of the more striking of these is Hosea chapter 4, 1 through 3. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land, so broken relationship with God. There's only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed, human dysfunction. Because of this, the land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea are dying. People say to me, you know, the Bible's not very interested in ecological matters, I think. I wonder which Bible that is, um, because Hosea 4 is pretty direct on the matter. So you see, the, you see how this fits with the creation story, right? Uh, we depart from God, we are at war with each other, and we simply don't have time, energy, or desire to do our work, to look after the rest of creation. And clearly, Hosea believes that that shouldn't be the case. He's he's attacking the Israelites for these three relational failures. People-keeping and earth-keeping are closely related in this passage as they are elsewhere. As I suggested last week, the, the animal world is suffering really because human beings are not doing their job as image bearers. They're not looking after the rest of creation, remembering what Psalm 50 says. For example, this is God speaking, every wild animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the air and all that moves in the field is mine, not yours, mine. Um, Wild animals and all cattle, creeping things and flying birds, let them praise the name of the Lord, Psalm 148. They have their own relationship with the Creator, and they ought to be, and are, be, they are, in fact, in that kind of relationship with Him. Uh, Proverbs 12, verse 10, have you ever noticed this? The righteous know the needs of or care for their animals. That's what the righteous do. Uh, that's the Jerusalem view. It includes that whole dimension of reality. And once again, very briefly, I keep saying that, but I really mean it this time. Um, If you then compare that to, for example, Hinduism, again, you wouldn't expect that kind of relationship with the rest of creation to be articulated, and and you don't, right? Brahman pervades everything. Plants and rivers and animals can be manifestations of the sacred, for sure. You will know, most of you, that Hindus regard the cow as a particularly sacred animal. But at the end of it all, the natural world in that way of thinking is only a window into another world into which Hindus hope as quickly as possible to pass. So it's an escapist uh, uh, view. It's all illusion. None of the emphases in classical Hindu faith 
involve any idea of the intrinsic goodness of the material world and the human care of it as a primary duty. Because the material world is not important in itself. It's only a place where divinity manifests itself. This is very interestingly illustrated by the fact that the sacred Ganges is, in fact, a very, very polluted river. Uh, the, 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 the kind of religious sentiment that exists does not lead you to care about that fact, nor should it, actually. It's entirely logical. You, you would not expect uh, otherwise. Uh, you get the same idea in quite a lot of uh, indigenous religion as well. There's a very common assumption around nowadays that people who hold the earth to be sacred in various ways and and don't make a distinction between human beings and the rest of creation, must therefore have a much more caring attitude toward the rest of creation. That is quite commonly said, in fact. And yet, if you look at the historical record, you find lots of reasons to doubt that. Um, Pre-modern Native American tribes, for example, certainly placed uh, very high intrinsic value on creation, and certainly thought of it as sacred. And yet, the Montagnier people of Canada still attempted on their beaver hunts to kill every single beaver they encountered. Why? Because they thought if they didn't, that the beaver would warn the other beavers, and they would run away, and then they wouldn't be able to hunt. So they, they really had a, an almost anthropomorphic view of beavers, and the way to do that, to stop that problem, was simply to kill them all. Uh, the Plains Indians, on their buffalo hunts, typically killed many more buffalo than they needed, and white-tailed deer were hunted, according to one author, to extreme scarcity and even to local extinction by various Indian tribes. Uh, the Cherokee believed, for example, that if you shot a deer, another deer would immediately appear in another part of the forest. So there was no connection between their behavior and what we would call ecological degradation because their world picture didn't allow for that. So the idea that just because people think the cosmos is sacred, inevitably this leads to a certain ethic, this turns out to be untrue, uh, in fact. So where does all of that get to us by way of summary? Um, I began by asking, in which story do we find ourselves to be inextricably middled? And Jerusalem says, fundamentally, this story is about right relationships. Fundamentally, right relationships and broken ones. Uh, we are designed to relate to God and to our human neighbors and to the rest of creation in certain right and good ways. If we were to do it, shalom that lovely Old Testament word for well-being and peace and flourishing would break out. And to the extent that we do it, in fact, it does break out. But our relationships are broken. God is at work in the world to restore them. He will. That's where the story is heading. And uh, what we are called to do is to be reconciled to God, to be reconciled to each other, to be reconciled to creation and to live that out in the meantime. That's how I see the big picture of relationships, right relationships in creation. All right, I will stop there. Uh, Tony, are you coming to do yep. the thing that you do so well? So uh, we've okay. got...
about uh, 10 or 15 minutes for questions. Um, if anyone would like to throw some questions at the end. Yes. In the um, first point, the relating to God, and the first quote from the Quran you put up, mm. you, I think I'm right in understanding that you put it up there to show it was different from the Jerusalem view. Mm. But to me, it looked very similar to many Old Testament verses which said, keep my commands or else, mm. and mm. things will go bad for you. <coughs> and also, the way we interpret the New Testament is sign on the dotted line to be a Christian, or else you're going to hell and it's going to be very bad for you. Which kind of supports the Quran point of view. <laughs> Indeed. Um, if that is one's take on the Christian, biblical, Judeo-Christian story, yes, there would in fact be a lot of similarity. And when we talk about politics tomorrow, we'll see that that's one of the reasons why lots of people compare conservative Christians to the Taliban. Because structurally, those two ways of approaching the whole business of which story we're in are quite similar. So everything depends on the question, is that in fact the best way of rendering the Judeo-Christian story? And of course, obedience is, well, obedience is exactly what's built into the story. We ought to obey the law of God because it's the right thing to do and it's the best way thing to do. So of course, there are many injunctions uh, that we ought to do that. But at the same time, there is both a recognition that we don't, that in many ways we are unable to solve the problem and that God intervenes and God's love and grace and redemption comes first and, and then afterwards we are then supposed to imitate that. And that is not, I think, the Quran's view at all, in fact. So it's not so much the individual passages once again, it's the whole story in the context in which you're reading. So think about the Exodus. The Exodus is the great paradigmatic event in the Bible. I keep moving and the camera is not following me. Uh, the Exodus is the great paradigmatic salvation event. If you were to ask the ancient Israelites, when did we get to know who God was? The answer is in the Exodus. Right? Scripture returns to the Exodus all the time as the, as the great paradigm. And it turns up in the Gospels and all over the place as, as the paradigm for how, who God is and how God works. So let's think about that. That's a people who could not save themselves. And Moses was not sent with this message. Here is my law. Keep it for 20 years and then we'll talk, as it were. God rescues the Israelites from Egypt and then he takes them to Sinai and says, by the way, there is the shape of life that ought to be lived. And I think that's a very different kind of thing. So the narrative framework, the big story, what you think the contours of that are, inevitably influences how you read and understand the, the parts. And that's why I, I spent so much time last week talking about the big frame before we got to this. Because even how you think of the Christian and politics, for example, depends an awful lot on what you think the big, the big picture is. So, you don't look entirely convinced, but no, I, I, mean, I, I agree with you. It's just an example. Yeah. Yes, by itself that may well be true. 
But the example was designed to show what is generally true of the Quran, sort of in total, and that is that there is no idea of God loving those who don't love God first. There is no idea of seeking the lost sheep. There is no idea that there's any big problem to be solved. In Islam, the rest of creation is exactly as it should be. It's only human beings who have a problem, and they just have to get on with it, pull their socks up, repent, and turn around. And it is regarded as being well within, entirely within our power to do that. So they're very different assessment of the depth of evil, the nature of the human person, and so on. Okay? All right. Uh, just, um, <coughs> just to back that up, uh, I've been reading um, some of Ian's book today um, on a plane. I was flying back uh, from Tasmania. And uh, one of the most, just personally, uh, I think pervasive um, influences of your emphasis on me which began the last time, three years ago. It's very important, um, but you really develop it in, in the seriously dangerous religion, is God's deep character is utterly pragmatic. He works with what he's got. And that's actually all through the Bible, from the very beginning. Whereas we have cursed with this perfectionist view of God, that he's a perfectionist and we, he won't actually do any deals with us unless we're perfectionists, but you are, you're point all through the Old Testament is this is actually not what the narrative talks about. God, from the very beginning, deals with what he's got. And he's got plan B, he's got plan C, because he's got us. Um, and, and it's the same in the New Testament. Hmm. Um, I, I'm not sure the disciples are an awfully impressive bunch of people. I mean, he deals with what he has there too, and the early church. And I think that's a, a fundamental theme of the biblical view of God, that God is good and holy and righteous and all the rest of that, but he does not stand on his dignity, he does not insist that we come up there. The whole thrust of the story is very, very different from that. And in the Gospels you get some wonderful pictures of that, but it's not only a Gospel reality, it's already a it's already how Yahweh interacts with Israel and the nations in the Old Testament, it seems to me. So. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, Ian, I, I'm a little concerned in terms of the inter-religious comparison. Um, one of the starting points in uh, good inter-religious comparison is comparing best with best. Yes. Um, and so it, it really leapt out at me, particularly when you were looking at creation care, if I can use that as a mm -hmm. general term, but could have applied equally to the uh, earlier question. Um, so when you're talking about uh, Christianity, uh, there are all these good reasons, and you compare that with uh, Islam and Hindu and mm -hmm. so on. Um, but I'm not seeing your quoting... Uh, eminent Islamic um, teaching and theology about, uh, and I'm sure it wouldn't be too difficult to find good Islamic teaching which would say, in fact, Islam, in fact, does have a consistency between its ethic and its practice. Mm. Um, and then, as soon as we, as, as soon as we get to who, they, who, who Muslims or Hindus might quote in terms of 
the conservative Christians, oh, well, we don't count those people because they're not truly Christian or they're not truly following gospel. So we're comparing the best view of Christianity where specifically excluding a whole bunch of, frankly, probably in a lot of countries, the majority of those who would call themselves Christians. Mm. So we're the special ones. Uh, and, but we're comparing ourselves to, uh, you know... So the comparison appears to fail there yep. uh, on a couple of points. Uh, thank you. That's a very important question. And, uh, of course, the danger that you are describing is a very real one. So let me just clarify something in case it clearly wasn't clear, in fact. I'm not actually talking at all about how practicing people have practiced their religion. Practicing people in all religions, practice their religions in all sorts of ways. I'm very deliberately restricting myself to the sacred texts, philosophical writings, and so on of these traditions. And in the case of the Bible, I'm not at all saying that Christians have, in fact, oftentimes had a particularly good creation care ethic. I'm actually trying to say, as we look at Jerusalem scriptures, how does it appear they handle this kind of issue? As we look at the Quran, how, wh- what is the content that, that we're looking at? And I'm certainly taking guidance on that point from lots of experts on, on that. So, of course, it's true that Islam, for example, on the ground, or Hinduism on the ground, um, is a very, very variegated kind of reality. For sure it is. Islam, as practiced in Afghanistan, is not the same as in Saudi Arabia. And of course you can find Muslim intellectuals um, who would take a very different view from the Taliban. Of course you do, as a matter of fact. Uh, But that's not the exercise I'm trying to involve myself in. So I'm sorry if it came across as if I was. I'm actually asking the question. When we look at the cosmology, theology, anthropology, politics, and so on, in terms of what these traditions in their holy writings and so on, and as interpreted over the the centuries by their holy people, as it were, in terms of, of what those traditions have to say about these important questions, what are the similarities and what are the differences? It's perfectly possible still to make mistakes about that. Of course, one strives not to make mistakes about that. And when I was writing the book, of course, uh, anyone who writes a wide-ranging book is going to have to farm bits of it out to people who might be expected to know whether blunders were being made. So I certainly did that. So I'm reasonably confident that my description of these traditions is accurate and that they are very, very different. And in many ways, they are saying very opposite things in some respects. Uh, Islam, of course, is very similar to the Judeo-Christian in many ways because those scriptures were part of the, they were lay right at the heart of Muhammad's own sort of reflections. Um, So I absolutely agree as to what I shouldn't do. I'm with you on that. I am kind of pushing back and saying, I'm not doing that, and I'm sorry if I gave the impression I was. Uh, so thanks for, the, thank, thanks for the, the caveat and the warning, which is a very, very good one, of course. Yeah.
Ian, I wonder if uh, we can just reflect on contemporary Australian politics mm. in which one of the uh, f looming issues is a national plebiscite about uh, same-sex marriage. Mm. And so I'm wondering what uh, Jerusalem says to Canberra, or perhaps <laughs> more especially, what Jerusalem says to uh, Darlinghurst and the Sydney Mardi Gras. Um, one of my most cardinal rules in life is not to comment on the politics of the country in which I am currently a guest. Uh, having said that, uh, tomorrow we're going to be thinking more about this because um, the question that arises is, suppose, suppose you buy my picture of what biblical faith, the ideals that biblical faith presents us with about how things ought to be. One of the next questions is, okay, but we live in a world where lots of people don't have any interest in those ideals. We live in a very plural society. So what's the relationship between the ethical vision and the politics? Many people appear to us, many Christian people appear to assume that these are the same thing, that law and politics and ethics are all the same thing, which would lead you then to a politics whereby if you won 51% of the vote next Tuesday, you would introduce the kingdom of God on Wednesday. It would be a utopian approach to politics, an all-or-nothing game, right? Here's Jerusalem, and we're going to impose it. And the question is, is that, is that in fact the best way of thinking about it? And it relates to lots of questions, but it certainly relates to the question that you're raising. So suppose you think, as I do, I'm pretty clear on this myself, I have a very definite set of convictions about what Scripture uh, teaches us about sexual ethics, among many other things. I have no question in my mind about what that means for the church. But the question is, what does it mean for the polis? What does it mean for politics? What does it mean for New South Wales or Australia? That is not necessarily the same question, or at least these are, there are overlapping sets of questions. And that's the zone in which I think we could have very fruitful and important conversations. But until we disentangle these things and begin to think in a far more appropriately nuanced way about the whole business, we're not going to do a great job, I think, of parsing out the individual question. That's as much as I'm going to say by way of advice to your government in Australia. Um, but I, I do think for us in the church, this is a huge question. One of the things that scares people about Christian politicians is precisely the fear that if they won a majority on Tuesday, they would introduce the oppressive society of the Taliban on Wednesday. That's a very real fear out there. Same in my own country of Canada. And because so many of our brothers and sisters do indeed give the impression that's what they would do, it's a kind of a hard question to deal with. So we really have to think about that question. Are ethics, law, and politics the same thing? And if they're not, how ought they to relate to each other? And which kind of posture should we take? Are we going to argue that every ethical stance we take ought also to be a law and should also be part of a political, party political program? Do you want to come back on that a little bit? Good, let's do that tomorrow. We'll, 
Okay, that's a good idea, actually. That's a good place to stop because Simon wanted me to be punctual, which is a word I can't spell, let alone understand, but I, I do know I should follow orders of wiser people. So with that, um, let's give Ian uh, some thanks. And we'll look forward to tomorrow.